glad that you found it worthwhile to stick around late on a Friday night. So congratulations and thank you. I think we have a fabulous panel today. I'm so excited to have been asked to present. Um, just a clarification, I did not go to undergrad for Yale. I was actually grad school and it took me two tries to get in because um, uh, the MBA program there is, is quite of a tough program. Um, but again, very glad to, to be helping moderate this panel tonight. I think we've got some terrific panelists. I really want this to be an open discussion. I've got a list of questions that I framed before we met this evening um, to help each of our panelists really share about what they're doing in the realm of talent and workforce analytics. But well, we had some great discussion, you know, in the in the keynote speech as well. So I really encourage you to ask questions as we're as we're moving forward. Um, in fact, I think what I'd like to do just to get a better sense of who's in the audience, just by a show of hands, can I ask how many people would say that they are in the HR field or the HR industry? Show of hands. Okay, about six or seven. How many of you would put yourself in the analytics camp, the analytics industry? Okay, many more show of hands. One waving in the back, thank you. <laughs> hardcore, hardcore analytics. Anybody here from IT or technology? Okay, a lot of hands as well. Did anybody come in here because they were getting a tour of the building and didn't know it was going to be? Okay, great, thank you. That was brilliant speech off the, off, the, off the cuff. That was really fabulous. So. Terrific. Well, what I'd like to do is, is get started. Um, what I'm going to ask each of the panelists to do is give us a quick introduction of your name and where you work. And my next question after this one is going to be going deep, a um, little bit deeper into how you do and how you got started in workforce analytics in the organization. But for now, just tell us who you are and how you got into this field. So, David, you want to start? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm David Parker with Bank of America. Um, I work in an organization called Salesforce Optimization. Um, the biggest charge that we have is to turn our Salesforce into just that, a retail Salesforce. Most people think of personal bankers inside of a branch as just an order taker, and we're really trying to get them to probe into customers' needs more and to sell all the value uh, that we have available at the bank. So. Great. Thank you. I'm uh, David Dietrich. I work at EMC. I'm part of our um, global education area at the company, mostly focused on external education for our customers, partners, and also employees who take it. Um, I head up a small data science team, um, and we basically do research and create education materials related to data mining, machine learning, and related topics using open source tools. Um, so the genesis of this was really we started acquiring big data companies and uh, realized that it's not just enough for people to buy massively parallel architecture databases, you also want to teach people what are the ways you can really get a lot of value out of these things. So that was kind of the early formation of me and my team, and uh, we work on lots of research projects there, but also across the company as well. Thank you. Um, good evening. My name is Lisa Crota. I work at Fidelity Investments. Um, right now I'm in our global business services group, but um, prior to this role I was in the finance organization and as Greta mentioned, one of the largest expenses that we do have are employees, so that um, let me get involved with some really neat analytics and um, been involved with a lot of um, the different work that we've done, especially around um, people movement and then organizational redesign and um, I look a lot at matrix organizations and how we interact um, across the company and across um, the global workforce. Hi, I'm Melissa Arante. I'm the director of HR Analytics at Liberty Mutual Insurance. And we're responsible for 
internal HR research, reporting and metrics, and business intelligence. Terrific, thank you. So actually, Melissa, I'm going to ask you to start, and we'll come back this direction. Um, I'm really interested to find out about how workforce analytics came to be within your organization. So what was the business need that made folks decide that this is something we need to do? How did you decide to stand up that function of their practice in your organization? How did you get leaders on board? Tell us a little bit about the evolution about how you came to do what you do. So our leaders were on board from the start. Uh, our EVP of HR back then, Helen Sales, talking in 2005, was looking for someone to start HR research inside um, the HR department. And so it was really her vision. So she had hired me to start the research function. At the time, we had two people. We were responsible for the annual employee opinion survey and starting up basic research. So over time, we hired a couple of PhDs, and we worked on creating. The first model we created was the predictive model of turnover. We were predicting new hire turnover to help reduce our new hire attrition. Um, and it's just grown from there as we get requests from clients, as we look to what's happening in the business, and how can we use workforce data to help solve business problems and then bring it to the business. It just continued to grow. So from that group of three, we're now a group of 15, um, you know, and our responsibilities spread and included the reporting and the business intelligence. Sure. So my story is a little bit different. Um, coming from finance, um, my background's in modeling and looking at um, multi-year planning and things like that. So when opportunities came up for us to look at the workforce, that's how I got pulled into things. And I think some of the interesting things that I've been able to work on um, are not only looking at our employee populations, but also looking at how we interact with vendors, and especially in our IT workforce, we have different engagements and different people. So that's been really complex, and it's been interesting to pull things together, not only from a data perspective, but also how are we doing the work. And for me, not coming from HR, um, I've really learned a lot, and um, that's been interesting, but um, I guess to answer the question, how did um, workforce come about from the leadership? In my case, it's been more project-based. Every once in a while, I'll look at um, a group together that's been more tangible. For example, something I worked on was maybe a year-long um, organization that came together, and um, in the end, it really was a project. And I think um, we've now been able to bring the data sets together in a way that are standardized, and now people are leveraging them more. So we're starting to see areas pop up. Um, across the firm that are, are having um, actual names of work, workforce analytics and things like that. So it's exciting because um, I think if you had asked me this question a few years ago, I wouldn't have associated myself with it. I would have told you I love what I do and um, gone on and on and on. I wouldn't have had a name for it. So um, this is really exciting for me to be here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess I've been involved in a lot of different things. Um, Prior to education, I've done software product management design. I've done, uh, you know, headed analytics and operations team. The role that I have now, I mean, we're really creating education materials for people. Uh, like I said, they're free and open source tools. So, you know, I think back to the comment earlier about quoting the McKinsey numbers of one and a half million people and, you know, these numbers everyone quotes. For me, I'm kind of seeing it a little up close, right? I'm seeing the people who are trying to become data scientists or trying to become heads of data science teams. So for me, I get to see uh, kind of what what sort of uh, archetypical patterns emerge of the kinds of people trying to make these changes uh, and grow, and what are the kinds of growth that they need to do based on where they're starting from. But the project that I was thinking of related to workforce analytics is a little different. Um, I think back to Greta's presentation, a lot of what I read is about um, attrition modeling or predicting high performance. Um, the project 
that comes to mind for me was part of a project team I was with uh, where we were trying to measure and predict innovation within EMC. So innovation, I think, is one of these that's very squishy for a lot of people, right? Everyone talks about wanting to be innovative. Companies always say they want to be innovative. But to figure out um, what innovation is and who's doing it is a relatively tricky problem. Uh, so the way we approached it was really uh, every year we have innovation contests where business units put up uh, challenges and prize money to solve those challenges, and then people can submit ideas. Uh, so what we did is um, a friend of mine who's a data scientist looked at a lot of that data and created social graphs of the people submitting ideas. And they looked at um, what are the attributes related to the ideas that do best, and also what are the social interactions among the people submitting the ideas. So based on this, we could look at who are the hubs within those networks of innovation, who are the most innovative people, and um, what attributes do they share, right? And so to reward those people is very different than rewarding other people. And the reason I say that is because some of these people um, are in the inky shadows and want to stay there, right? So you have to find ways to um, reward them, but um, respect their interests and remain in that way in some ways. So it was, it was quite an interesting project. So it was really a cross-functional project that we did for them. So our executive team asked what should have been an easy question uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, the question was, who are my best salespeople? And on the surface, it's an easy answer. You go right to the incentive plan, you find out who's funding uh, at the highest levels, you pluck those people out, which is exactly what I did. And then I went to the executives that these people work for, our regional executives and then the area executive, and I just handed those names to them. And I got across-the-board answers where they would say, these aren't my best. These people over here are my best. And then I'd look at where they are on the, on the curve, and they're somewhere in the middle, maybe slightly to the right of center. Um, so it really started spurring much more interesting questions about, well, how are you defining the best? And it, it's not about home runs. Like anybody that likes baseball, you know, everybody loves the home run hitter because he can win the game when the bases are loaded with one swing. But it's about the, the balanced salesperson. And all of our programs, all of our measurements, we're looking at the big wins. And we're measuring who is good at those big wins. Um, and as I started digging into the, the different areas of focus, uh, at Bank of America, we're nationwide. So we have a lot of leaders managing associates, and they all had different um, variables that they were defining as successful. So we started gathering up all of these opinions on what makes it great to be a personal banker um, and then started doing exactly what Greta was talking about, taking these variables and then looking at the outcomes and not just the incentive plan, but other things like how active are you? Uh, are you creating sales interactions? Are you interacting with our tellers? Are you helping other associates in the banking center win inside their incentive plan. And through all of that, started a new program called Salesforce Optimization. Because uh, we quickly learned that we don't know who our best are. And we not only need to define that, we need to figure out who is great, who is not great, and then start to tease out what are the characteristics that differentiate these groups of people.
Uh, and then once you know that, you can coach to it, you can hire to it, um, and then you can look at who is actually attriting and make sure those folks that are leaving are not exhibiting those great characteristics that you want. So I would argue that attrition isn't always a bad thing as long as it's the right attrition. Um, so we also create programs at the bank where um, if you're not exhibiting these behaviors, we're going to try to push you along that continuum as well. And that's, that's actually perfect to what Greta was describing in terms of maybe the behaviors you thought were your successful behaviors are not, in fact, the ones Clearly. you're looking for. We don't want you to be too friendly. We don't want you to be too chatty if you're working in a call center. You know, we, we love the enthusiasm, but stop talking. We need to get to the next call. So, terrific. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a great segue, because I think Greta also set a great stage for the importance of any talent analytics that you do in your, in your organization absolutely has to be connected to the business. Um, and I will share, I do a lot of workforce planning and workforce analytics in government organizations. That's my specialty. I focus on the federal pra practice within New Zealand. Um, it's really easy for HR organizations and the analytics that they're doing inside to be buried deep in the organization. Even, in, even if they have fabulous in insights, they're not getting connected enough to the, to the mission or to the business. Um, and, and therefore, they're not viewed as successful, you know, within that organization. So my question to the panel is, um, can you give us any specific examples where the work that you have done has been directly related to the business? And do you have, for example, you know, cost savings or other operational improvements that you can speak to that have resulted because of the, the analysis you've done and the insights you've been able to bring and the decisions that have, have resulted? Do you want to mix it up? And mix it up. Who would like to start center? first? We'll start from our David's grabbed the mic, so oh, he's passing it on to Lisa. So we'll go with Lisa. <laughs> so as I mentioned, I um, have a lot of experience in strategic planning and multi-year planning, planning. So that was directly tied yeah. to um, different cost savings initiatives, and that's where um, we were able to work together. As I mentioned, I was on many cross-functional teams in past roles, so that's where this all came together, where we can look at something at a very high level. Um, I would say... I was coming at it more from the business side, so we get together and decide what are the levers that we need to look at to um, affect the change that we need to see in the organization over um, a certain time horizon. And it's really interesting um, to, to be in the room and hear the highest level decisions, figure out what are the priorities, how are we going to look at this, and, you know, again, this is all just tied back to business, so we have real goals that, you know, it's tied back to. But then from a data perspective, to then be able to go back, um, for me, when I'm just enjoying my day at my desk, um, go to the data set, um, tie this then back to the big picture, and then get into all the nitty-gritty and then work with partners that um, I think really get at um, things that you were talking about, because I'm, I'm not as close to, I think, what maybe someone's day-to-day -day work maybe, and I'm, well, I love the data and can see what it's telling me, and what, as I look across, um, and can maybe tie it to something and measure it later on. Um, it's like a KPI, um, a key performance indicator or something um, that might be more on the business side. I think when we're talking about the workforce, it's really, really important to think about the people aspect. And that's what I love about the presentation we talked about earlier because I think sometimes it can feel really cold when you're just looking at percentages or um, a number or you're doing scenario planning. And um, it's really nice when you can bring a team together and then um, have the full picture. And I think that's when it works really, really well. And um, it's best for the organization and also for, um, I think, the outcomes and the people that are involved with um, different changes that end up happening. Uh, it's a great question. Not all the work we do is business-related or we wouldn't do it. 
So, <laughs> um, and the way we tie it to the business is either we look in, you know, when we were first starting out and we were kind of trying to drum up business and people didn't quite understand what we were doing, we would look at the organization and see where do we see issues. We'd look at our reporting and see where there's high incidences of turnover, um, or we'd see long times for selection, you know, time to fill, um, and start approaching those leaders and say, it looks like you're having an issue here. Would you like us to look into it? And generally the answer is yes. You know, and then we can do some analysis and come back to them with it. Another way we often start is we'll ask them about issues they're having in their business, and they, especially when you get to the line, you know, the line business leaders with your HR partner, you'll hear them express quick um, research-related questions. They don't recognize it can be answered with data yet, but once you start hearing their questions, you realize it's it's easy to solve or easy to get an answer for them. Maybe it must be hard hard to solve, but we can get an answer with data for them. And the other thing we do, and one I think one of the strongest things we do is when we hear from an HR business partner or we're having an issue with turnover or selection, whatever it might be, we say, well, the first thing we need to do is talk to the managers and see what they think is going on. And so we hear the manager's ideas, you know, why do you think people are turning over? Why do you think selection is difficult? Whatever it might be. And then we test their hypotheses, and it's so powerful for managers to have these ideas, but they're not sure where to invest their time and resources. Then we can test it for them and give the information back. So I often think um, of an example years ago when we were meeting with uh, sales managers and they were experiencing extremely high turnover. Um, since I know we're being taped, I'm not going to say how high that turnover was. Um, and so we met with individual managers in all of the regions. And they all said, well, we're really not having that much of a problem with turnover. I've only lost, you know, three or four people this year in their groups of 10 or 12 because you can't see it in your own group. But once you aggregate it across everyone, there's a significant turnover problem, but it was hard for them to see. But they had great theories on why it was happening, and we put it all together. We're able to create a model where we could predict the likelihood that someone would turn before they joined us based on their resume. So we're able to implement that. You asked about cost savings. In that particular example, working with the business to estimate the cost savings in nine months, they estimated $4 million of cost savings from not hiring people that would have cost us money to train and then turn over. That's a great one. Um, you know, the ones I think of where I've had more concrete measurement of the outcomes, I think are more toward what you were saying, which is more in our sales analytics function, because I'm pretty close to people who do that. But I guess one point I would just add to what's been said is, um, right at your presentation, you talked about Chris DM, which I think is, you know, very good methodology. But one of the things that I think is critical in these uh, kinds of projects is when you have those wins, you have to evangelize them, right? It's not just that you and your manager know you saved $4 million, right? You need to tell people, you need to show them how you did the project. Um, at least for us, like the innovation project we did, our main stakeholder was our CTO. So for him, he was very excited about innovation. That's what drives him in that role. So we're also able to communicate that. We, you know, help coach other groups on how to improve innovation. So part of the ways we measure that is how many more patents are created based on that, how many more of those ideas go into new software products that get created, um, and what is the influence of people who are doing very innovative work across the company. The other thing we're able to do is um, look at pockets geographically and also by business unit of who is really driving that and try to relate it to different kinds of training that was done on innovation and also look at top-down support in those groups. And um, there was quite a lot of connection for doing that. So I guess the thing I would add is, you know, measure it, but you have to communicate what those wins are too.
Um, understanding the business is critical. Um, I actually spent half of my career at Bank of America behind the scenes as a data scientist who thought that I knew the business because I knew the numbers. Um, but until you get out into the banking center and you stand behind the tower line and you've got 40 sets of eyes looking at you, wondering what you're doing there, why aren't you helping, um, it changes <laughs> your perspective on just what it is that I'm measuring. Um, when we first created um, throughput, for example, when we're looking at what good productivity looks like for a personal banker, um, we started out where productivity was productivity. If you were able to create one sale out of a thousand um, customer transactions, that was good. And as you went up the transaction scale, you expected you know, a linear curve. You should do more sales the more people that you see. Uh, but unless you know the business, you need to understand that Boston is a much more affluent market than, say, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And the customer profiles are different. So those transactions in Boston are going to take longer because you're going to have a customer that might want to talk about a Merrill Edge or a Merrill Lynch investment. Uh, they might have a mortgage or a refinance they need to talk about. You might not have that same type of customer in Myrtle Beach. So really segmenting our population became important so that we could measure correctly. So that when I say your throughput is um, 2% or your yield is 2%, that's good for you. Your yield over here might be 8%, and I'm going to like you guys the same because you're in markets that are much different. Um, I never would have thought that years ago until I got into the channel and started learning more about the business. And the only way I learned that was talking to our associates. Um, that communication point that you made, Greta, um, is invaluable. Just ask the question, why is it that you're at 2%? Do you think that's good? And you'll start to hear the feedback that is critical to understanding the data points that we look at on the packet. That's terrific. So um, a related question about return on investment. We've talked about some of the analysis that you've done or the efforts that we've heard about that lead to a return on investment for the problem that you're studying. I'm curious to hear about the return on investment for each of you and your practices or your programs and your offices. What I'm really getting at here is how do you make sure that your leaders and heads of the organization continue to see value in the work that you do and what are the metrics by which your work is measured? So, and, and Melissa, I know you said you started with a three-person team and now you're up to 15. Obviously, you're doing work that is generating insights that are important for the business. You're demonstrating that through some return on investment. Curious to hear about the metrics by which all of you and your offices are, are measured internally within your organizations. So You'll start. We, we keep it very simple because we're bankers and we like to have everything be nice and clean. So there's three groups of people now after we've defined what good looks like. You're either red, you're yellow, or you're green. So throughout the entire franchise, we know how many, what percent of our bankers are green, yellow, and red. We started out, once we first created this measurement, at 6% green. Um, and this last month that we've reported it, we've moved that up to 24% green. And we want to continue uh, that trajectory upwards to around 50%. We understand there's going to be a ceiling where you're never going to have 100% green or the measurement's probably wrong. Um, but we're clearly moving that curve and we're doing it by coaching to the behaviors that we've understood that make a better banker and 
through attrition, intelligent attrition, for bankers that, that just aren't going to make the cut. How do others evaluate yourselves in terms of your metrics or your ROI? ROI. So I guess. It's late on a Friday. <laughs> Uh, luckily, it's just water. They're certain. Yeah. <laughs> um, they don't. They don't. Um, at least, I, I guess I'll give a couple examples. In the innovation work that we did, I mean, that was really more like a kind of crowdsourced team. It's people who were volunteering to help out on this. So, um, costs were very low. We have the uh, advantage of having acquired some big data companies, so we have a lot of technologies that we could use right off the bat. Um, and we used free and open source tools to do that. So for us, it was about figuring out um, who is really driving value. I mean, EMC is very much a technology engineering driven company. So figuring out who's creating more new IP is a really big deal. And figuring out how to replicate that is really important. Um, my personal team right now is a little different. Uh, my team, we're measured on, you know, how are we creating things that people want to buy? relative to learning about data science and about big data. Um, that has taken off in a way that I think people didn't expect in the uh, in the education area, right? I think they probably didn't quite realize what they're getting into when they tried to build a team. Uh, but that's been very successful. Uh, but I think that's very traditionally measured. You know, it's, it's volume, it's dollars, it's those things. But I think the other side effect is um, we get drawn into conversations that uh, we wouldn't have been drawn into in the past. So instead of creating um, improvements to our education software engines, um, you know, we're able to do things like, um, you know, create like sense users and then recommend things um, on the fly. So we can we can determine what they might like, what kind of content they may, might like, um, and do things that are much more robust. I would say um, how the team that I've worked with in the past and I would measure our success are um, people using the system that we created. So um, as I mentioned, I was on a cross-functional team. Um, we were able to bring together about eight different data sets and standardize them and then um, create a capability that allows um, everyone in our firm to look at our employee data. Um, so again, I mentioned not only just people that work um, at Fidelity, but also we have different engagements with different people and it's kind of complicated so we were able to standardize that, bring it all together into one place and then also um, standardize the way that people are looking at matrix relationships so we have a fairly complex workforce and while we have really good record keeping systems they're not all in one place so um, I spent the better part of the last year or so um, working with the team and um, it was a really interesting experience for me too because um, while I've worked with technologists I never had the experience to the level of um, creating business rules and doing business requirements document and really explaining things that I have been doing um, in my past roles to then scale into a way that um, you know, other people could use. So um, this past July we went live with um, a standard system that now um, is available to everyone at the firm to use and um, I think we measure success by how many phone calls we get for people wanting to use the tool or asking questions about the tool um, and different ways that they're actually using the data because in, in the past um, we didn't have this available to us at all or it'd be one person just pulling together data and then pushing it out to people. Now we have um, a system where people can go pull the information and it's really interesting um, if you're not, because if you haven't had the depth of experience to use something, the new ways that people are looking at things or 
the, the next steps that they're looking for in it because they say, well, great, it needs my need to this percentage, but these are the next things my organization is looking to do, and it's really that next level of analytics. So um, I think, again, I'd just say the more people we have using a standard is success, and then what they're thinking once they're using the standard is bringing us to another level, and it's really exciting. I think it's easy to make the case for our team because if they didn't have us, they'd have to pay consultants for the studies and you know how much consultants cost. And so just doing a few studies a year more than pays for our entire group. Um, but the way we measure ourselves is we conduct customer satisfaction surveys of our clients and ask them how we're performing. And we ask them if they use the data that we provide and the analysis we provide, especially for managers in their day-to-day -day work. And we continue to try and improve that. We get some pretty good usage, different areas, you know, with more usage than others. Um, but those are our simple metrics, and, you know, it gives us a good measure. Yeah, I've heard a lot of organizations are smart about getting feedback from your customers just like that, so that you're not producing necessarily kind of the same reports, the same analysis, same statistics, but always updating it to make sure that you're staying relevant. So uh, on that question, I'm going to ask you to indulge your inner geek. And I'd like you to tell me about kind of the, the cool stuff you're working on today. So these can either be analytic approaches that you're taking that you haven't tried before within your teams or connections that you've been able to make looking at different sets of data that have resulted in insights you never thought you would have been able to get to years ago or months ago when you were first getting started. What's the, you know, if someone says, what's cool about your job, how would you answer that today? Everything's cool about our awesome. job. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so people are always looking for what's new and cool, and I think um, basic good research design of practical questions that help managers make better decisions in their day-to-day -day work has the most impact, and it might not sound cool initially, but managers are so excited to have some basic knowledge about things like, are rehires better than new hires? In our population, a huge proportion of our new hires are rehires, and are they good? Should we be doing that? Right? How about employee referrals? Another huge proportion of the source, um, sources of hires are referrals. And managers need to know if these are good or not good, and why they're not good if they're not good, and what they can do about it. So we publish, this is what I think is cool, every month we put out a new what we call an HR insight. We publish it through a tool that goes to every manager's desktop, and it's a one-page summary of research that we've done, and we tell the manager what's the key question, the data we use to answer it, and what's the action that they can take. So really practical application of our research for managers to use on a day-to-day -day basis. So mine's more of a time measurement. Um, <laughs> a few years ago, I was working on a, a, an exercise and looking at an organization and uh, across various dimensions. And I don't even know how many hours and months actually I spent with various other people trying to get to these particular views and you're testing the data and um, getting these manual files and we're playing and we're learning a lot. So it was actually very valuable work because as you go through something painful, you learn quite a bit and <laughs> come up with best practices and so on. So um, I had to do the same thing actually just last Friday. It's a very um, kind of near-term example. And it took me two hours to do something that literally took a couple months um, across many people, you know, three years ago. So we're um, kind of looking at the same things again, and I think that's where you look at, well, is this repeatable? Well, yes, but do we want to spend that much time doing it? And I think that's where the incentive came um, to do some of the work I was um, describing earlier um, from a systems perspective, is that that need was there, and we finally had um, a sponsor where, where things just came together to get the right people together, and um, it's definitely paying dividends um, to be able to do other work that day. So it was <laughs> <laughs> Lots of other work. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I guess for me, uh, what's exciting is uh, being on top of the big data space and data science space is, is very exciting because it's changing so rapidly that for me, I get to learn lots of new things all the time. I get, I get very excited about that. I get the chance to write patents with people who are on my team, which is which I enjoy doing, inventing new things. Um, when I again I go back to this project I mentioned, there's a, a colleague of mine who, tongue in cheek, says that um, PowerPoint is where ideas go to die. So he basically <laughs> says, you know, you could do a great project, and if it winds up on a slide, and that's as far as it goes, it's it's kind of dead, right? So the, I the real idea behind that is. If you're going to make it work, you either have to use it to drive decisions, or you have to integrate it into a system, right? So it's, it's systemic. And with the innovation project I mentioned, what we did is we, we took it from a standalone project to building tools that um, on the fly would evaluate ideas people would submit. So if you're going to submit a new idea for uh, process improvement or for um, analyzing language, it would basically analyze the ideas you're submitting and tell you other people who may be experts in that space that you should talk to. Or it might tell you, um, here's two other ideas like that in the last three years. You know, go read them first. So basically tell you ways to make your ideas better very rapidly as you're developing them, right? And that, that's something that um, I haven't really come across. So that was a, a very interesting project to do and one that's uh, more like a living project, right? It wasn't a PowerPoint and then it's filed away. Right. It's, it's something that continues to improve what people are doing. And if I may, because before I jump to you, David, I had a really funny example and a powerful one where um, an HR director was presenting to the executive board, and instead of walking in the door with a PowerPoint presentation, he took, um, he had everything created as infographics, and he made a placemat, so a plastic placemat that had infographics on the top, the top and the back. And so all the executives walked into the board meeting, and there was just a placemat at everybody's table, and they sat down. And they immediately picked it up and started bending it and flipping it over and looking at it. And that was the whole discussion. That was an hour of discussion, and they, they got the point. There was no PowerPoint. There was no presentation, no speech, just a plastic, you know, rubber placemat with all the information on it. And it was incredibly powerful. Yeah. So thank you. David, how about you? What's, sure. the, what's the cool stuff? So we, we got two cool things that I'll talk about. One, everybody in this room is probably already doing, and we just might be slow to take. Um, so now that we know who's good and who's not, we're sending behavioral scientists out into banking centers, um, looking at these characteristics. Um, and when we're starting to feed that information into our hiring practice so that we can have more predictive hires that are going to stay with us longer, ramp up shorter, and get to a better production level. Um, so that one is probably the most useful thing that we're doing. Another one's kind of big brotherish, which is squirmy <laughs> in a little bit. So we have all these measures. We're measuring behaviors. We know who's doing them and we know who's not. So we feed this information into systems, our systems integration, where the managers that go out to talk to the banking center managers and the personal bankers, we're going to tell them what to look for. And then we're also going to ask them to document what action plans that you're doing with the personal bankers uh, to, to get them ramped up to, to a good productivity level. And then we're going to inspect that system to ensure, A, they're making the visits, and B, are you inspecting these things that we know are going to move the personal banker up to productivity? So, again, I, I can't agree more. You have to integrate the systems. If I just feed the manager information 
and rely on them to interpret it and take action on it, you're going to have varying degrees of success. You'll have some that really adopt it because there's some number of geeks out there that love it. Uh, but others are going to see another report along with the 10 other that were sent to them, toss it aside, and go about their day like they normally would. So we're going to force the issue to make sure that things are happening in the, in the, in the manner that we want them to happen. So six months' time, you'll have some new ideas on what's working or not? It's got to be quicker than okay. six months. Okay, three months? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so I've got two more questions to ask before we uh, want to make sure folks in the audience have a chance to ask questions. But kind of on the flip side, we've talked about things that you would deem kind of your, your cool stuff that's going on today. Um, my next question is it really rounds challenges that you've faced in your jobs. And what I'm getting at are um, difficulties getting to the data that you thought you needed to do the analysis you wanted to do, difficulties getting to the customers that you were trying to support with getting, getting them to read your analysis or sort of act on the results. What are some of the challenges that you faced trying to do workforce analytics in your organizations, and how have you tried to address them? I'm gaining agreement on what's important. So we from, have, from whom? From the, the, the managers. Okay. So when, when we define the measures that identify the good behaviors and the bad behaviors, when you ask the questions about what it is that defines success across a network of 5,500 banking centers and then all the managers that support that, you get answers completely across the spectrum. And when you omit measures that some people think are important, they tend to discount the end result. So once you come up with the, the minimum number of KPI, it's important to get everybody rallying around that, even if their measure didn't make the cut. So gaining the right adoption, and it starts at the executive level and it needs to push down. If you have the right amount of support from your leaders, um, people will adopt it. And then the other part to break through those barriers is to just publish the results. Everybody loves a good stack rank. Now, if you're in the middle or if you're at the bottom. <laughs> a little peer pressure. That's right. That's right. Nothing motivates a person more than being on the bottom of a list. So we do that. Um, put it out there, and it creates a reaction. And that reaction is what I look for personally, because I know people will, will take action. Especially if you used to be on the business side, you know exactly how those things are read. That's so right. you don't want to be there. Got that's it. Right. Okay. Others, what other challenges have you had to work through? So so I guess that's the, the one I hear, which is sunlight is the best disinfectant. You know, you just <laughs> make it invisible. That's right, shining light on it. So I, I think that is certainly a powerful one. Uh, to me, I, I think of two big challenges. One, um, Kind of goes back to the stakeholdering and consensus you were talking about. I think that's a huge thing. That's a huge thing, right? So um, the way I think that challenge manifests itself is uh, first, um, there can be a huge amount of challenge just getting your hands on the data you need, right? First of all, is it available? If it is available, can you get access to it? And sometimes that takes a very long time doing the actual analysis is a very short time, right? So um, getting consensus on that, getting the right stakeholders on that, um, can take a long time. The second is at the other end of the process where, um, you know, sometimes you might do a great analysis, but in so doing, you're uncovering unexpected insights. Um, and the reality is, um, as was said earlier, we're, we're people, right? So that means we have our unique set of experiences, our unique set of biases, all kinds of things, and our own set of operating assumptions the way we do our work, uh, which means if you show someone une something unexpected that may challenge their operating assumptions or may challenge 
their authority, there's going to be resistance. So um, I think that's the other big challenge, is finding ways to overcome that resistance, um, sort of see a new way of doing things. Because uh, sometimes the data will tell people things they're maybe <laughs> they don't want to hear. Sometimes I've done these projects and I've been told, maybe you should look at it this other way, right? So to imply there's a right answer and it's not the one you should. You haven't found what it. What methodology do you use? Right. And it's if you just keep yes. torturing the data, I'll get the answer I like kind of thing. So um, I, I think it's first in the, the upfront stakeholder and getting access, and then at the end, the you know sharing all the news, not just the good news part, uh, which can be very challenging. So I have two challenges that I that kind of came to mind when you asked the question, and um, I think the learnings that I've had from them are things that I try to start with now. So um, the first thing is actually definitions and communication. I think as much as we want to dive into the data, I think it's really important to make sure everyone's talking about the same thing and to document it. Um, that's a big part of what I'm doing right now in my, my new role, um, because what means one thing to one organization doesn't mean the same thing, or there might be a slight nuance to it, and then all of a sudden you get down the path of analysis and the outcome isn't what you expect and you're back to the drawing board. So to kind of set that up front um, and can't stress the documentation enough because you know you can think you've had the conversation and then um, it isn't clear, you know, people forget things, so it's nice to write it down. Um, the second thing, kind of related to that actually, is um, being really clear about what your starting point is and your baseline because I think that's another place where the definitions and assumptions can be different for people. And when you're looking forward and trying to um, predict things or plan for things, if everyone's starting in a little bit different place, the outcome may be different. And when you go to measure it again, you know, it gets back to that, is it repeatable? Or um, when we go back to something, the ROI and things like that, um, just really focus on, is the starting point consistent? And if it isn't, that might be okay, but to really understand why it isn't and then how things should be measured differently when you start to look for outcomes. There are so many challenges. It's hard to pick my favorite. <laughs> <Not great>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I, I can certainly pick a favorite. And I think that really is getting people to take action based on the results. So that's one of the reasons for those HR insights, because if you can hit all the managers with insights, you have a better shot at the uptake um, than just hitting a portion of them. And we have some people are frequent customers, and they do a lot of work with us, and they do take action on what we do, and other people, you know, well, could you cut it another way? Should we update the data? They'll come up with so many ways to delay um, without actually taking action, trying to understand why are they not taking action, and what can we do to help them get to action? So last question, and this is a nice jump off to this, and in fact, I think several of you have alluded to some of your tips and tricks, if you would, but my last question before we'll take questions from the group is, there may be many folks in the audience who are working to do workforce analytics, do talent analytics better in their organizations. Based on your experience, what's the one major piece of advice you would give to them? So for me, in HR analytics, I keep seeing this idea of this uh, curve that you start with you know, descriptive data and you work way up to predictive analytics. And I would suggest that that's not a great idea. And I think Greta and I agree on this. <laughs> Um, and I think the key way to prevent yourself from thinking you have to start with this descriptive and get everything right until you get to predictive is to have two separate groups. One does reporting and one does research. And the researchers never do reporting. Because once they start doing reporting, that's all they ever do. Because reporting will never end. There's just a ridiculous volume of reporting and that you just, you know, so we have a whole team of people and that's all they do every day, all day long. And then we have researchers who have quiet time to spend figuring out models and thinking and answering good questions and they have to stay separate. My 
I don't feel strongly about that at all. <laughs> Brilliant. Can I, can I give that advice to my clients? Please. <laughs> Thank you. I think I might be tagging on to what you said just a little bit um, about the research. I wouldn't have described it that way, but I love the framework. Um, so I guess whenever I start something or what I've found is since then approach to data, to become one with the data, I'm sure a lot of you do that already, but to just sit with it, I think the research is probably more appropriate, but just to understand what you're working with before you get started too far. And um, I think the other thing um, that's been a recurring thing that I've noticed is that things don't need to be 100% accurate all the time. You don't need that full, complete data set, and I think that's why it's really important to understand what you do have and don't let um, what you can't do get in the way of what you can do and um, focus on those things because I think that's when you have a really strong business case to go out and look for the certain information that you do need and you can really, um, I think, then champion um, things to create next steps. Um, I, I would say there's, a lot of these projects, there's a tendency to like leap in and start doing the analytics, right? And usually teams are not at a point where they can do that, even though they may have pressure to, right? So I, I would say the big thing that I see uh, teams kind of skipping is sort of the upfront stages, or trying to do that too quickly to show fast results. So I would say, um, you know, really almost over-communicate and really, really super understand the context at the very beginning as to why are you doing a project in the first place, um, what are the success and failure criteria of doing it, right? Failure criteria I think is important too because you can spend a huge amount of time on a project, but you have to know um, when to stop. When have you gone far enough that you know You've reasonably tried enough, and it's it's time to stop or or adjust. Um, and then I guess the second would be to um, not underestimate the time that's required to really condition data. Right? To me, that's a huge time investment. And everyone gets excited about the analytics. I get excited about the analytics, but compared to preparing the data and conditioning it, it's like this much time in the span of a week. Right? So. Um, I would say just keep that in mind when you map out projects. To me, knowing the process that you're measuring is the most important aspect of analysis. Um, and what that helps you do is understand the context. So when you have a number, you know right away whether that number makes sense or not. Because uh, nothing will hurt your credibility more than going to an executive with a number that does not make sense as it relates to the business. Um, also, knowing the process gives you credibility with the people that you're measuring. Um, that's why I like to be in the banking centers a lot. They see my face, they know that I'm not in it to tell on you, I'm in it to understand you better and to understand what makes you tick and how I can translate that to others that might be struggling. Um, so just Knowing that process to me is is the most important aspect of analysis and measurement. And the credibility in key is key, yeah. so that your leaders and leaders of the organization will take what you have to say and hopefully improve the business. So, so what questions do we have? We've got about five minutes. I know we're pushing things late on the schedule, folks, but um, we've done all the talking. Question: Here you go. Uh, you folks have talked about both hiring to a goal and coaching training to a goal, and I'm curious what kind of um, measurements and um, experience you have in terms of the success of those two different approaches. In fact, you know, is it, have you found that it is, it, it is successful to uh, coach towards a goal? So we have 
move the needle on the coaching aspect. So I, I mentioned how our green percentage of personal bankers has increased significantly over the past year. Um, and, it, and it's about the pressure. It's about identifying who needs the training or who needs the coaching and making sure they get it. Um, oftentimes it's ignored. We'll identify who's the red and then hope that somebody does something about it. Now we're actually making sure somebody's doing something about it, and that is truly moving the needle. So I don't know if anybody else wants to chime in on that. I'll answer all the questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions in the back? Yeah, so uh, to uh, look at your comment about PowerPoint, um, I've seen a lot of companies that I look at where a lot of these new uh, data projects will come out, and uh, they come out with a lot of fanfare, but two, three years later, when uh, there's not that exact response to the push for this uh, data to be reported, it seems like the whole effort kind of dies out. So what are some strategies you guys have seen that have worked to make sure that once you create this practice that it's being implemented by this, it's not just a near uh, year to year and a half, but over the long term? Yeah. So, um, Certainly having a sponsor is important, but like you said, that can change. People leave, what have you. Um, I think it's really about two things. One, building it into a process. So it's not contingent on a person staying or leaving. Right? It becomes part of the business. It becomes part of the process. Second thing is that um, you're finding ways to show the value all the time. Right? It's not just I did a great thing two and a half years ago. Right? Every month... They know you're saving the company money or you're making the money or you're doing something to make them more effective and you're communicating that. Those are the things I think help give it longevity, not just a sponsor leaving or staying, right? So I, th I think those those are kind of the big things to me. Mm -hmm. What do you think if you practice like this too? I think it has to be aligned with the business goals. I don't think it's always bad if an analysis, you know, falls by the wayside because maybe we've gotten what we needed out of it, or maybe it's no longer aligned with our goals. I mean, we need to continually look at what are we analyzing, what we're